today on the Tearsheet Podcast. There were companies I think you even had on your show before who were the first again put in a single state solution, but there really hasn't been much disruption or many entrants within that space. So we consider ourselves the latest organization to adopt what is, I guess, the, the optimal payment setup, which is transactions from our customers hit us, and then we pass them directly with no intermediaries in the middle where they need to go to the schemes. Um, there's a lot of associated values with that. You can go into a very dark rabbit hole of, uh, of description, but fundamentally it boils down to two really core headlines. Using that architecture and the data you're collecting to help drive enhanced authorization rates. And on the other side, using that data to help provide better fraud prevention by empowering the machine learning models that we're using internally. Welcome to the Tearsheet Podcast. I'm Tearsheet Editor-in-Chief, Zach Miller. On the heels of a $450 million investment round at a $15 billion valuation, Checkout.com became Europe's most valuable venture-backed business and fourth largest fintech globally. Bradley Reese, the firm's chief commercial officer, joins me on the podcast today to talk about the excitement around his firm's cloud-based payments technology that tripled its processing volume in 2020, adding 500 new enterprise customers, including Coinbase, Pizza Hut, H&M, and Klarna. In the U.S., the firm has opened a New York City and Denver office to meet growing demand for enterprise payment solutions. Bradley Reese is my guest today on the Tearsheet Podcast. Before we hop into our conversation, I wanted to tell you about Tearsheet's Acquire Conference 2021. It's all about the growth behind today's top financial brands. If you want to hear what top brands in the industry are doing to grow, to scale, to market, you're going to want to attend Tearsheet's Acquire Conference. We've got brands like Marcus by Goldman, Current, Step, Zelle, Shopify, it reads like really like a who's who, Money Lion, Charles Schwab, PayPal, Square, N26, Vero Money, Stash, Cabbage, Tally. If you want to hear what these firms are doing and how they're approaching growth in this era, you're going to want to attend the conference. The conference is sponsored by Burgo Pack. It's February 16th and 18th. For more information, you go to tearsheet.co, our website, and click on conferences in the upper right-hand corner. Hope to see you there. My name is Bradley Reese, and I'm the Chief Commercial Officer of Checkout.com. Sitting here in the U.S., reading a lot about the, the, the sheer boatloads of money that you guys are raising and the excitement around your business, can you, um, can you tell us what you do? Yeah, absolutely. And um, the raise I think you're referring to is our, our Series C for $450 million, which was led by Kotu. Uh, our company works in the digital payment sector. So we are an end-to-end payments organization, essentially doing the same job as every PSP advertises, which is helping merchants and partners the world over collect money from their customers around the world. It's gone a bit beyond that. Um, obviously, the cornerstone of card acquiring is supplemented by the ability to offer local payment methods. Um, especially last year, we saw huge growth in our payout solutions as well. And then, of course, various other ancillary services related to the core processing. So things like fraud, issuing as well. These are all areas we look to try and uh, try and help merchants manage. So, I mean, there, there are other companies, obviously, that, that do parts of this, if not a lot of what you do. So what is it about Checkout.com that's, that's I guess, different than, than some of the other options out there? Yeah, I think you actually phrased that question really well, because a lot of companies do parts of it. It's very hard to find someone who does everything all under one roof. Uh, there are companies out there. Uh, we consider ourselves a global acquirer, which means, of course, that we have the ability to offer processing services on a very localized basis all around the world. Um, you don't just get an acquiring license by clicking your fingers. Everyone tends to go through the same sort of growth path. At first, you become a gateway, then maybe a payment facilitator, 
then once you have enough volumes and you can demonstrate you've got a, a robust enough balance sheet, compliance, governance, you can talk with the schemes and potentially you can be awarded an acquiring license. Um, our first one was in the UK. Uh, since that point, we've uh, rolled out many more around the world. And so we look to compare ourselves with organizations who can offer a single API to connect to the platform, a single technology stack hosted within the same data architecture, uh, and equally be able to offer that breadth of offering that the you know, top merchants around the world really need. They have customers everywhere, so you have to be able to support them everywhere. Once you get to that position, you're actually breathing quite rarefied air. We're not the first to collapse the sort of gateway processor fraud acquiring module into one organization. Um, there were definitely you know, companies out there who, who did that decades ago. They grew normally by position. But then, of course, what that tends to lead to is having disparate technology platforms, which are not really communicating with each other as optimally as they could be uh, on the inside. So, again, you know, the marketing banner looks good. We're everywhere. But as you peel back the onion, you realize there's a lot of fragmentation in the systems. Um, again, that was sold for. Uh, there were companies, I think you even had on your show before, who were the first to get it in a single state solution. But there really hasn't been much disruption or many entrants within that space. So we consider ourselves the latest organization to adopt what is, I guess, the, the optimal payment setup, which is transactions from our customers hit us, and then we pass them directly with no intermediaries in the middle where they need to go to the schemes. Um, there's a lot of associated values with that. You can go into a very dark rabbit hole of, uh, of description, but fundamentally it boils down to two really core headlines. Using that architecture and the data you're collecting to help drive enhanced authorization rates, and on the other side, using that data to help provide better fraud prevention by empowering the machine learning models that we're using internally. So you put those two together. This is payments. There is no silver bullet. We don't promise someone we're going to increase their sales by 75%. Um, but again, the large merchants in the world, I think, are now increasingly looking at payments as a core competency. And if they can squeeze out that extra 50 basis points even uh, from their authorization rates, on in terms of customer lifetime value, that adds up for the largest guys to you know tens of millions to the bottom line. So that's still the core premise of how Checkout grew up. Um, obviously focused on the, on the card acquiring proposition. Sorry, a bit of a long answer there. We can absolutely go into some of the other products and the areas that we focus on, but that was really the cornerstone which the business was built from. I get it. So um, so who's the typical client? It's a global enterprise that's that's already has some type of, you know, either homegrown or, or piecemeal together solution and they're switching to you and, and you help to drive more dollars to the, bow, the bottom line? Is, is that sort of the, the proposition, at least at the sales side? I wish I could just give you binary yes or no answers. Yeah. It's, so, it's so variable depending on the region you're talking about and the unique challenges for that business and the industry they operate within. And of course, their maturity and understanding of payments as well. Um, so there's a whole kind of segmentation exercise you can go through. But if you think about how most merchants start, it's payments is probably not why they're creating their business. You know, they mm -hmm. may want to sell t-shirts online and payments to pain. Let's get it up and running as quickly as possible. There are some great companies out there who can facilitate that. Um, but as you start growing up, you realize that oh, actually payments is a big cost element for my business, but also there's potentially left dollars on the table by not having the right sort of tooling in place. So the way we approach it is very much as, as a toolkit with a microservices architecture. So you know, the largest guys in the world may only use us for certain corridors. Um, they may just want to use us for payouts in certain regions. Uh, they may have us in part of a, you know, a much larger acquiring portfolio where they're, where they're using a champion challenger model and whoever provides them with the highest authorization rates of their acquiring partners is rewarded with the volume. And that's kind of the zenith. So we can definitely support the enterprises where we're one of several partners they may use. However, of course, on a slightly more mid-market level, we absolutely have a solution that has the ubiquity 
to be able to access customers on a truly global basis. So it's really a, not a one size fits all. It's a, we have the right size based on that sort of toolkit approach to be able to support the business and the stage you're at. That makes sense. And I, I see on the, on the website, like one of the, one of the core case studies is uh, TransferWise, you know, a company we've had a few times on the podcast. What kind of work do you do with them? Yeah. So, I mean, they're a really good example because we help them on both uh, using debit cards, for example, to upload uh, balances into their ecosystem. And then obviously on the disbursement side, they have needs around how they're doing payouts. So we may not be helping them on, on every corridor. They may have their own banking infrastructure. But for example, some of the newer tools that have come out in the last years, things like Visa Direct and MasterCard Send, they provide a nice alternative if you want to you know, provide an expedited or payout on a Sunday. So making sure that we have the latest tools available uh, as the schemes release them is also really key to the overall proposition we have. I think if you're looking at that holistically across the industry, the schemes for a long time actually didn't innovate that much because there wasn't really the competitive pressure to do so. Now there are very much existential threats, either with the rise of union pay, it could be Alipay, it could be open banking initiatives. Um, so they've really had to innovate and they've actually done a very good job of it. So now you're starting to see a lot more tools coming out from the schemes themselves. But of course, them releasing them doesn't necessarily mean downstream that all of their partners have them available for the ecosystem at the same time. So that's another area we focus on is trying to stay as current as possible, making sure the latest tools, even if they're not ones created by ourselves, are available for, uh, for our customer base. So can you talk a little bit more about what that existential threat is, Bradley? Yeah, I mean, it depends on, again, the market you're talking about because there's different levels of maturity. I always well, think that- Let's talk about the US because that's primarily yeah. where most of our listeners are. Yeah, absolutely. So the US is actually a relatively simple market from a payments perspective. It's very card dominant. People have ACH. Mm-hmm. And then you've seen you know, innovators like, uh, I think, Plaid, I mean, especially deserve a special mention um, because that Plaid link turned what was a pretty horrible UX into something which is palatable. Um, but of course, it was still predominantly focused on you know, the larger fintechs, money remitters of the world. Um, you, you have seen, I mean, the schemes, again, this is getting quite into the, into the weeds here, but they are releasing products which are designed to compete with the traditional banking rails to open up new revenue streams for themselves. So a lot of this is related to, you know, global remittances. So how do they compete with SWIFT? And then on a domestic basis, how do they compete with things like ACH? I think in the US, the the main entrance we've seen, of course, PayPal isn't ever present, but it really is the buy now, pay later segment. But even that is tied to specific verticals more than anything else. Although you are now seeing some diversification with companies actually focusing on the travel sector versus, you know, fast fashion, which is where most of those companies tended to grow up. Great. So I know that um, this large round that you guys just raised, you know, some of that, at least on, on the on the news side, said that you're opening the U.S. office and opening, I guess, a, another satellite office in Denver. What, what are the plans in the U.S. for, for your team? Yeah, you can't ignore the U.S. And when we look at, at the, the partner base, the merchant base, which is, which is in this country, I mean, it's pretty astonishing. Mm-hmm. Um, you often see a lot of innovation elsewhere in the world. Our, our head office in the UK is obviously a fintech hub in London, um, but it's still very hard to compare anything to you know, the Bay Area group of companies. When you think our job is to help facilitate any movement of money on a global basis for the largest companies in the world, of course, you know, America is very much front and center there. So the San Francisco office, which we've had for quite a while now, was, was a natural first step for us. But of course, there are great companies all across this country. So you know, Denver is turning into a second tech hub. We're not, uh, we're not naive to that fact. We want to have, I guess, some regional diversity. And it's also a big country. If we have offices in Berlin and Barcelona and London, um, that's covering less of a landmass than the Eastern Seaboard. So 
obviously having a New York office there as well made a lot of sense for us and was something that was always in the plans. And I think with the investment to an extent as well, now just felt like the right time to put to put boots on the ground and really try and build out a, a local presence. And um, how's that going, in, at least from a talent perspective? Is is Are there particular skill sets you're looking for that you can find here? Um, I, I guess I'm just kind of curious for like qualitatively, like what does it look like to build out a team right now in the U.S.? Yes, payments has always had hubs. Um, mm -hmm. The U.S. Is, is no exception to that. Uh, and there's been regions like Cincinnati and some of the companies that were there. Um, but San Francisco, I think, for me, still remains that epicenter. So it depends what you're looking for. But payments was, uh, you know, 10 years ago, companies didn't have heads of payments, or most companies didn't. So it's kind of a, a recognized sector that's grown up so quickly in the last decade that that knowledge center is still actually a really important element of it. People who have experience and actually understand how the industry was put together, where it came from, and then, of course, where it's going. That said, we also look outside of the industry for that reason, too, is that you want to get fresh ideas in. Um, I think the U.S. has always been an incredible employment market. Uh, I think the adage is, you know, it's not always easy to hold on to developers in San Francisco. Um, but as we look to kind of build out the teams here, we definitely haven't struggled with, with hiring at all just because there is that really great talent pool. Um, a lot of diversity in it as well, which is always nice to have. And then on top of that, I mean, check out, we may be a little bit under the radar because we're, you know, we're B2B, we're not a B2C fintech. Mm -hmm. um, but that said, if you know, you know, is how I'd phrase it. So I think we get a lot of interest from people who've been in the industry and, and I think can recognize that we're doing something quite progressive and may, that may be, you know, the next step in an iterative journey of helping to just improve global payments acceptance and move the movement of money in general. So I want to go back, Bradley, to something you said earlier that like enterprises, you know, didn't don't start out as as you know thinking payments isn't a strategic uh, skill set. You know, it's something they have to do to run their business, but it is becoming more and more strategic. Can you talk about sort of that trend and how that plays into the growth of Checkout.com? Absolutely. Uh, should everyone be a fintech? It's it's a question that you know sometimes gets bad. Um, I, I don't think so, to be honest. I think sometimes there's a lot of advantages to being and sometimes there's not. At the end of the day, focus on the customer. I think that's always the way to kind of approach these problems. And it's the same way I look at things like open banking. Uh, open banking definitely has a lot of potential. And of course, there'll naturally be a lot of interest from merchants who may believe that they're going to get better cost structures. Um, obviously, a lot of the fintechs taking advantage of having these open APIs in Europe, for example. Um, but you need to look at what problem you're solving for. And I think that's always where you have the question around traction is, are you able to actually deliver a solution to the market that is an enhancement of what's in place today? So I think that's always the way to approach any sort of product building exercise is really that end to end approach and looking not just at the schemes, the merchants, the providers in the middle, but equally looking at the end customer and, and also and their user experience. Interesting. And um, also, uh, you talked about sort of the core um, checkout.com sort of offering, but then there were some ancillary products, I guess, that you have or services. Can, can you share those with us? Yeah, it's about the movement of money. So kind of going back to your previous question on would becoming a fintech and managing disbursements in your business or being able to take more control over funds which entering your ecosystem be valuable for your customers? Well, uh, potentially. And that's why we linked things like payouts, treasury management, FX services as well. Um, once you collect funds from your customers across the globe, it seems a bit counterintuitive that you then have to send them to a bank to manage your FX for you. So mm -hmm. if you can do that all through the same system, the same flow, the same architecture, just receive one settlement with already you know competitive converted fund rates, 
it seems like it's going to solve an operational headache, but equally it's just going to be a more efficient flow as well. So it's, it's our approach is looking at products that really help with the, the overall movement of money. We refer to it as connected finance, which is kind of our almost, I'd say it's internal branding. I don't think it's become external just yet, but it's quite a nice way to phrase it because you have the connected payments element and being at the forefront and seeing that first transaction enter an ecosystem, be it for you know, a gig economy company, be it for a fintech, it just gives you that natural position to be able to understand the overall flow of funds. So it helps from a compliance perspective as well as operational, as well as technical, as well as cost. And where are you guys headed? Um, obviously, the, the big foot closed the, the round, um, staffing up the office in, in the US. Like, what's next for you guys? I guess both from a business perspective and, and maybe from a product perspective. A lot of it is keep doing what we're doing. It's a big world out there. And while we think mm-hmm. we're starting to make an impact, if you look at you know our share of wallets on a global e-commerce base, it is still tiny comparatively. So there's a lot of expansion, staying true to our principles and trying to roll out that acceptance product, that core requiring product that we have and making sure it's available in all corners of the earth. And of course, making sure that hopefully at least everyone has a chance to have a look at it. Um, and we are new in many of the markets around the world. You know, many of our offices have opened within the last two years. So we are still very much at the beginning of that journey. However, in, in conjunction with that, there is a lot of innovation taking place. There are a lot of local nuances. That's uh, always the way I think about payments is that it's the very definition of international business. You go global, but you really have to think local. So it's always going to encompass making sure that we're adhering to the local standards, the local preferences. On a very basic level, of course, that means having the relevant payment methods that may be preferred in that country. Um, but it also means looking at some of the more advanced tools. So again, you know, payouts on a global basis is Swift. A wire is the most efficient way of doing it. Uh, we don't think so. So again, how can we kind of help the world get a little bit closer together? Something which is happening very naturally since the internet, anyway, and obviously before then in different ways. Um, and payments, I think, has been a bit of a laggard just because of the different regulatory and financial systems that sit behind it. So we view our position as, as potentially central to that, of helping to alleviate a lot of the pain, uh, grease the wheels, and just encouraging you know, global commerce to flourish, to be honest. Bradley, thanks for joining us on the Tearsheet Podcast today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me.